This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered legal advice. The transmission of information on this podcast is not intended to establish and receipt of such information does not establish or constitute an attorney-client relationship. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements. Welcome to After the Buzzer, and today our guest is well-known sports business leader, owner, consultant, and commentator Patrick Risch. Patrick is the Director of Sports Business Program and Professor of Practice in Sports Business at Washington University in St. Louis. He is also the founder of the sports consulting firm Sports Impact and a contributing writer for Forbes.com. Patrick is the author of They Shoot, They Score, Lessons in Leadership, Innovation, and Strategy, published in 2018. Patrick has also written numerous sports business articles and served as an expert witness in several lawsuits involving economic damages and can frequently be seen on ESPN, CNBC, and Fox Business, to name just a few. The sports program he founded at Washington University is truly a game changer. He gives his students practical assignments and introduces them to practicing executives and exposes them to real-life experience. Patrick is truly a sports business superstar. I am happy to have him on after the buzzer. When I asked him to appear, he asked me what we were going to talk about. My answer was simple, everything. (laughs) And I said this with total confidence that Patrick could provide insight on so many topics. So let's begin. Patrick, tell me about Washington University's sports program. Well, first, Bob, thanks for having me here. And the program is now nearing the end of its fifth year. Uh, the program was born thanks to Joe Lakeup. Okay. And who is Joe Lakeup? So Joe Lakeup is the uh, owner. I, I guess we're getting away from the term owner now in the NBA. Right. What, what do they want to use? Executive chairman? Right. Is that uh, right? The NBA has gone away from owner as opposed yeah. to. The, you know, I always went away from the term my owner because I never like to refer to anybody as my right, owner. But I would right, say the right, owner, right? right it was right. a little bit of different. So we'll say he's the executive chairman. Uh, the head honcho of the Golden State Warriors. And so people may be wondering that are listening, well, what would the owner of the Golden State Warriors, uh, what's his connection or tie with St. Louis, Missouri? And the simple answer is that his youngest son, Kent, is a 2015 alum of Wash U and also played on the men's basketball team. So ironically, uh, just as Kent graduated in May of 2015, I joined the university a month later. But my understanding is just before I joined, in the fall of Kent's senior year, so that would have been the fall of 2014, Mr. Lakeup. You know, he had a soft spot for WashU to begin with. Apparently, he applied to a bunch of medical schools back in the day, and though he got turned down by all of them, he at least got waitlisted by WashU. Okay. So his, his son always teases him about that. So he's always kind of had a soft spot for WashU. Obviously, his son going to WashU cemented that relationship, and uh, he gave us a gift. And that give basically gave rise to the program. The only problem was WashU didn't have anybody internally that had the expertise, that had the connections in the sports industry. And that's when they uh, reached out to me. Luckily, I was right down the street, about seven miles away at Webster University, where I had been since 1999. So the, the thing I'll say about WashU is, you know, I thought I was pretty well connected before I got to WashU, and just everything has elevated. Uh, The people that I've been able to meet, all the professional conferences that I go to, it's just really been uh, wondrous for my career. And in terms of what we do at the program, we of course have curriculum, courses in intro to sports business, sport management and leadership, analytics, marketing. But in addition to that, we try to be very proactive, 
very extroverted, if you will, which of course is the opposite of the stereotypical person in university setting. We get our students out there on uh, networking trips. We uh, get them involved in case projects. We have a summit every year where we bring people to us from across the country. Interestingly, the minor that we have, it's an 18 credit minor, a lot of the students, because of the opportunities that are there for WashU students where they go to McKinsey and Bain and Capital One right out of undergrad, maybe they're not going into sports right away, but it's about opening their eyes about what's possible maybe somewhere down the road. We place five, six students in internships every summer, and we place roughly about the same number in entry-level positions every summer, and the rest go on to, uh, as they say, work in industry. Well, as, as I said before we started doing this, we were kind of talking about uh, esports a little bit, and I've gone to some of your conferences, which have just been really fascinating and, and very interesting, and people from all over St. Louis and the sports industry come just to hear other people come visit, and I, I've actually uh, was a panelist on, on one or two yes. of them. Uh, but the other thing that I found interesting, and I said in my introduction of you that you did a lot of uh, practical experience, is I sat in on one of your classes that students were making a presentation on the XFL and yes. the XFL coming to St. Louis. And yes. I, I found that very interesting and what the students sort of, what did you have, like seven teams do something? Yeah, just uh, at the end of my sports business class, I think it was fall of 2018, they did a case presentation of how would you market this new XFL football team that's here in town. So we try to do that kind of case project at the end of each semester. And uh, as you saw, the, the kids at WashU are pretty dynamite, and they, they brought a lot of interesting and fresh ideas, some of which I shared with the team president, uh, who's going to be swinging by campus soon for a guest presentation. Right. When I saw those, I, I actually sent to the uh, people at the XFL, I said, I just did this class. You guys should spend some time. Listen, they had some great ideas on how to kind of engage the uh, St. Louis community, which I think might be challenged by sort of not a minor league team, I don't, a minor league league, but not a not the NFL. What do you what do you think about that? I'm jumping off of yeah. I mean, I think that the St. Louis XFL team has a really good shot of being one of the more successful in the league, and I say that in part because we're the only market of the eight that doesn't have the NFL, and I think that now that you have a lot of positive momentum taking place in the St. Louis community. I mean, we just came off the All-Star game in the NHL. We did a wonderful job hosting that. We've got Major League Soccer coming to town. Bob, as you know, we felt punched in the stomach when the Rams left. I believe, also if you look at the league that folded, the uh, AAF, many of those teams that were drawing 25,000 plus a game, those were in markets like St. Louis. Similar size, not as many amenities going on in those communities. They don't have mountains and beaches. And I think that in St. Louis, I, I would be shocked if we don't draw at least 25000 a game in the introductory season. Now, whether that's sustained, uh, we'll, let's wait and see. But I do think that with Vince McMahon's money, he's investing a half billion dollars in this league, I do see them at least getting through the first three seasons, and then we'll see what happens from there. I kind of wanted to start with the high schools and sort of work our way down, but since we're talking about this, let's stay with uh, the XFL yes. and, and the MLS in 2022 you could have a soccer game a xfl game a cardinal baseball game and a blues playoff game uh stan Kroenke would argue that st louis couldn't support that what's your view on that from a, from a business point of view my view is that it can be supported again there's a there's a difference the xfl is an entirely different price point and there's fewer games so it's not as big of an investment and let's face it 
you know, all of these fan bases don't overlap. We both know very affluent people in this community that will go to all four. But there is a segment of this population, which is ironic we're talking about segmentation, we're talking about that right now in our sport marketing class, is there is a segment of the St. Louis community that are passionate football fans, people that were Ram season ticket holders, people that have kids that go through the local high school system and are playing football. And I think this is the kind of targeted grassroots marketing that I have no doubt the XFL team here has been doing their due diligence leading up to the first game, which I believe is February 23rd. MLS, um, it should be easier for them because, as, as we know, if you ever want to you know, eat up uh, time on any of these podcasts, just bring in Bill McDermott. Mr. Soccer, for those of you that don't know, uh, Mr. Soccer is Bill McDermott, played for the Billikens, won a championship with the Billikens. He's called the Billikens soccer games on the radio for over, I think, 40 years and has done ABC, ESPN, World Cup uh, coverage. Bill can describe this as a soccer community, and its roots go back over 100 years. My suggestion to the leadership there, and I'm sure they won't drop the ball. They recently brought in Dennis Moore, who's a longtime uh, chief revenue officer for the De uh, Denver Broncos. For and one of our years. partners, Jason Thine, just joined that group to help with the stadium development. Oh, that's wonderful. Brilliant. Right. They've got a strong leadership team. Don't drop the ball and make an assumption that just because it's soccer in St. Louis that you're going to be able to sell easily. And I don't think they're going to make that mistake. They know that's got to be right uh, coming out of the gate. So I think you already have that loyal fan base in soccer not worried about them selling an XFL again because the price point is lower and because it's a very small quantity of games I'm not worried about them in a short term uh, maybe overlap with the other so seasons. you just said you were talking about segmentation in your class what do you mean by that because then I have a follow-up question yeah. to whether soccer is St. Louis a soccer town I sometimes argue that we've had four or five teams in St. Louis that have been soccer and so None two, of them exist anymore except for the one in the... Uh, yeah, so, so two things there. Just generically, when you're talking about segmentation, market segmentation, is looking at the local regional area and looking at the people and saying, okay, what are the demographics? Let's break people down by age and gender and ethnicity. And then you start kind of going into that more deeply and say, well, how many of these people are, you know, are tech savvy? How many of them are consuming sports on their mobile devices versus a uh, traditional linear way? What kind of things do they like? Getting to the psychographics. That's all part of segmentation that a marketer needs to know to be able to tailor their, their ads more specifically. Now, to the second point that you raise, yes, you're absolutely right. We've had some failed... Uh, incarnations of soccer in this community but Bob the difference to me is MLS is certainly on much more solid financial footing even though there's issues with the league in certain markets there was a recent article in the athletic about the impact that soccer united marketing has on the on the financial well-being of all of the teams in the league that there is a tie there that I don't think the Forbes valuations of these teams quite captures so that being said, I think that the league is in a better place financially than all these other iterations of soccer that have been in and out of St. Louis. One of the things that I've heard, and I actually follow women's soccer more than I follow men's soccer, because what I've been told, and I, when my son, like every other kid in St. Louis, grew up playing CYC sure, sure. soccer, yes. and he was fast and he was really good. and. I discovered I knew nothing about soccer when I realized that you had to keep both feet on the ground when you when you <laughs> when you entered uh, 
when you started. You can't throwing, do the Patrick Mahomes jump pass on a throw-in and right. I think the new stadium that they're building here will be a, will be a real plus. Yeah, that's that's that's, a, that's another obvious difference between this incarnation and all the other ones that you talked about that did not succeed is having that brand new facility. And I just think the momentum of soccer in this country has slowly built ever since you know we were kids. And when you have an expectation that something's the best that you're going to get. MISL, Major Indoor Soccer League, I used to watch that when I was a kid, but it, you, you knew it wasn't the very best, and it was a modified form of soccer. So I think now that we are part of the Major League here in the United States, that coupled with a new stadium, I think it just changes expectations. But women's soccer in oh, the United right. States yes. is, is the best soccer in the world, because our women's yes. soccer players are the best, where, yes. the, where the argument is that men's soccer in the United States is not the best in the world. Obviously, you have the Premier Leagues and the ones in, in Europe. That's kind of a challenge. If you're kind of, kind of shifting back to starting at the beginning in the high schools, yes. uh, and, and do you think that we're losing that demographic? You know, everybody wants, a, and you know this, you could probably talk for the Bill McDermott 10 hours about uh, <laughs> demographics and marketing and everybody obviously is going after the 18 to 34 but our young people are just different type of consumers uh, and as well as different type of participants than you and I might have been or at least I am a lot older than you but the, the, they're right. totally different I mean that's one of the things we're talking about in classes is, is how do organizations in the sports industry whether they're teams leagues um, agencies that are coming up with advertising campaigns, how do you target the Gen Z, who are my current students, right. and then the alphas, who are, What's alpha? the, that's the uh, kids that are basically like little kids right now. Okay. These are people that grow up tech savvy. The alphas that have a cell phone in their hand by the age five, right. in many cases. You've got to reach that group a lot differently. So that's why the value of social media marketing and using, you know, I asked my students the other day, do you use Twitter or Instagram as your main go-to? Most of them said Insta uh, Instagram, which which alone is telling, and it's telling to someone that's trying to market to these groups. Is it's how you, you know, which social media medium are you going to use? You need to know what the kids in that age group want, and then also you have to be creative with it, right? It's not just posting a picture, but a video, because kids like to see video content. So. That's the kind of way that you've got to reach these young people. But you're right, Bob, with not only eSports, but the ability to stream so many different forms of, of entertainment, it is harder than ever before to reach these young people. And that's crucial because when you talk to someone in sales at a team or a league, you talk about, let me get the acronym right, LTV, lifetime value. Get someone when they're young. Most of us don't become huge sports fans of a particular sport when we're in our middle age because right. we're too busy with life and everything else. You build those loyalties and passions when they're young. So that's why this, this battle for the passions and attention of young people is, is so crucial. I, I follow uh, Rich Luger. I don't, do you know who Rich is? He, I don't. He, he does uh, surveys and sort of demographic studies on for ESPN. He just retired. And he used to argue, and I agreed with him, that really... Everybody's going after that 18 to 34, whatever that is. Whatever that is at that point, whether it's Gen X or, mm -hmm, or the mm -hmm. baby boomers that are once we're in that demographic and moved out. Sure. And, and he argued, but those people aren't loyal, that the young people are not loyal, that one, they don't have as much income, and two, they're not as loyal. Like They're going to go to 
either the next big thing or they're going to go to the price point and determine. Where someone like me, an older person, is more loyal, has more disposable income, and you know, if I'm a ESPN fan uh, and I follow ESPN, I'm going to stay on ESPN before I really decide I'm going to start streaming something else. So, I, I always kind of wonder. In, in your experience, do you do you see that that the older generation is sort of forgotten and ignored to go to the younger generation? who is not spending as much money. Well, I could understand why, you know, older fans are going to be more loyal in part because the teams that we root for, we've been rooting for since we were little kids. And you combine that with the fact that when we were little kids, what else did we have to uh, distract us? What other forms of entertainment were challenging our passions for sports? I can say, you know, again, in my case, growing up, I, I, I grew up right when cable TV was starting. Right. Okay, I remember the birth of MTV and the birth of ESPN, but I didn't have the number of channels and options that kids have today. I didn't have the streaming. I didn't have the internet when I was in you know high school. So all these things are competing for the, the time and attention of these younger people. So having said all that, I do think in these conferences that I go to, the Sports Business Journal, you're well aware of, of their reputation in the industry, they really talk at many of these about how do we design our stadiums to maximize fan engagement. The whole gambling issue is about increasing fan engagement. How do we even at the micro level make sure that all of our staff are making every single person feel welcomed to boost fan engagement? Because if you can't do that, and especially with younger people, then you're right, you're going to lose them. I think the other thing that's tough as far as the loyalty that you mentioned is Again, if I'm a teenager and I live in St. Louis, yeah, you'd think that they'd probably root for the Cardinals, and most of them probably do that like baseball. But it's easier to root for another team somewhere else now because of the streaming and because of the uh, how small the world has become because of all these technological advancements. The Pro Bowl was on yesterday. Probably the worst game ever to watch any All-Star game is the NFL Pro Bowl or football Pro Bowl. Nobody's hitting anybody. And I was saying, you know, back in the day, again, I'm aging myself, you know, the All-Star games were really, you, you kind of look forward to the Major League Baseball All-Star game because we didn't have interleague play. We didn't have, you know, 162 games on TV. You know, that was sort of a big time we could see Willie Mays versus uh, Mickey Mantle in, in the All-Star games, and, and we kind of missed that. So as you look at the young people as they grow up, and have you noticed any trends in participation, interest, you know, so many young people, everybody's shooting for the scholarship. Parents are putting, you know, the, the Tiger Woods dad, and somebody's looking for the Kobe, uh, unfortunately, yesterday, and his daughter had a passion for the game, and he was teaching her the, the game. We, we seem to want our kids to specialize more. Do you, do you see that affecting business? Well, a, a couple things. First of all, I would agree with you on the NFL All-Star game, the, the Pro Bowl. I think they should take a page out of what the NHL has done. If it's not going to be competitive in a traditional sense and have the same aura that it used to have, then let's let's do some things to make it more fun for the fans. And also on the broadcast, let's use technology as the hockey was and introduce these player tracking so that people can see it and boost the, the, the viewing numbers there. That being said, again, it's challenging to uh, keep the interest of younger people. Teams and leagues just have to be so creative. They're investing so much time and energy, as I said, on creative digital marketing campaigns, going through Instagram. 
how do we design our facility to be as tech uh, friendly as possible so that people, you know, I remember Mark Cuban at a conference several years ago saying, we don't want people looking down at their phone during one of my basketball games. And I thought to myself, boy, how outdated does that sound today? Because today, if you can't use your phone when you go to a facility, either to check your own stuff or maybe to post your experiences and create these Instagrammable moments, you're going to lose that person. So it's, it's kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. Yeah, I, I know one of the things that people talked about in, in stadium design is making it so that it's Wi-Fi friendly. So oh, you, absolutely. You, but let me ask you, could you take the position that maybe we're going to move away from uh, live attendance and events because it's just so, you can do so much more through one of the mediums. People right? don't need to be at the game to get a better experience. I mean, I, I would argue seeing that, it. Right, I would argue that watching NFL football on TV is better than watching it in the game. Oh, watching absolutely. In, in I love watching the games on Red Zone because I can right. watch multiple games. That's why all this time and energy is being invested in how can we make the experience, the, the, the acronym that's used is FOMO, Fear of missing out. So now we've, wait, wait, wait. we've learned two. We've learned two acronyms: LTV, LTV, lifetime okay. value. And FOMO is and, and FOMO is fear of missing out. How can you create uh, this experience? And you know, and, and there is interesting research. You know, there's a company based out of Milwaukee called GMR Marketing. They have a big office in Charlotte, uh -huh. a big office, in, and they put out a, a research piece, a 10, 12 pages. I should share it with you about experiential EQ. Why is it that people still EQ being uh, emotional intelligence? Okay. Why is it that people still like going to concerts? What is it about going to sporting events that that draws people to those events? Given what you said is true, given that watching at home is is as strong as ever before, and they cited it was really interesting and and, and kind of digs into the psychology of consumers, is they talked about these emotional need states. People want to feel a sense of belonging, or they want to have a sense of release, or they want to feel a sense of identity. And I forget the fourth one off the top of my head. But those emotional needs are still the things that drive us out of the home. Even though we have a great viewing experience, these are the things that drive us out of the home to still engage. So this is what you're fighting. FOMO. <laughs> you got to create right, a I, reason for people to want to engage and, and again, feel that identity and, and camaraderie and so forth. Right. I had a friend who uh, is a Buffalo Bills fan, and I was we were having a discussion. I said, I would never go to a game in Buffalo, it's too, especially in this November, December. He said, I said, it's too cold. I said, I, you guys should put a dome. He said, no, no. He said, he said, that's the sense that we get, that we're all in there together. We're all freezing. And, and that's a community. Sense of that, community. Sense that's of right. community that he thought was really... Very, very. And important. by the way, on that last note, I think that's one of the reasons why many experts that you talk to feel that Major League Soccer uh, is really going to be on the upswing because a lot of this research about younger consumers talk about their, their need, more so than people of our generation, to connect with others when they attend events and a sense of community and a sense of togetherness. And if you have gone to a Major League Soccer match, Many of these markets have done a wonderful job of trying to emulate what you see in Europe, right. of the singing, the chanting. Bar none, the best regular season sports team in terms of match game, uh, day, match day experience inside the stadium is this new LAFC, uh, the Los Angeles Football Club that's going to be entering their third year this year. 
beautiful stadium in downtown Los Angeles, right next to where the Trojans play. Okay. Singing and chanting, and there's a section behind one of the goals called 3252. That's the number of seats, except they don't sit. They stand the whole time. They have railings, and it's just constant cheering. So this is a stadium that they built specifically, specifically for Specifically for them. And they have MLS team? They're MLS team. Last year, they actually won the Supporters' Shield, which is the best regular season record. Actually, they set a record for the best most points in one regular season of any MLS team ever right. for a team that's only in their second season. So talk about the difference in the experience between that, which seems to be a small venue specifically for soccer, and what they're doing in Atlanta, which seems to, if you know, seems to be getting a lot of credit for really turning that franchise and, and soccer in Atlanta into a, a big thing. I'm not surprised that Atlanta, of course, they're playing at Mercedes-Benz right. Stadium. And I think that initially part of the interest in the team was, well, you know, we get to play in this beautiful new facility. And so that's, gonna, that's one reason I would go to a, a sporting event right. is to see a new facility. But, you know, I would go once and say, okay, I've seen it. Also, Atlanta has, you know, the southeast. I lived in Charlotte for several years. I went to school in Charlotte. Of course, that's another expansion team coming up in MLS. So I'm not surprised about the, the diversity because soccer obviously attracts an, a, a kind of an, an ethnically diverse group. But millennials and Gen Zs, and there's a lot of young people that go to Atlanta for work. Right. There's, there's a strong uh, commerce there. This is their, their way of getting out and releasing it and engaging and being able to sing and yell and chant. Something that if you stop and think about it, you don't really see that throughout the entire game. At a hockey, at a football, at a basketball or a baseball game. Right. You don't. Right. And it's, it's part of that European, uh, South American culture of how you you know cheer for your team at a at a sporting event, I give a lot of these MLS markets credit. This is what they're doing, and in Atlanta's case, you take the size of the city. You know what else do you have going on in Atlanta during the summer? You've got the Braves. Braves are a little bit back on the come, but not they've not been strong for a while. What else are you going to do in Atlanta, sporting wise during the summer? Right. So I, I, it's really been uh, marvelous. Right. I, I want to get to talking a little bit about the college landscape and but I but why we're kind of on this these niche sports mm -hmm. talk to me about uh, we mentioned earlier esports and is that the next big thing in sport I don't understand it you know so so I got a funny story for you on that on that uh, comment of I don't understand it so uh, as you know since 2000 I've had a, a consulting practice I do economic impact studies for sporting events I've done about 85 projects and the very last project I did was in Detroit at their new arena, Little Caesars Arena, and it was the Riot Games League of Legends Summer Finals. Okay. League of Legends is, is one of the more popular esports games, and the Riot Games, based in Santa Monica, is the publisher of that game. Probably one of the most uh, lucrative right. publishers that's out there in the industry. So we're collecting data prior to, you know, the gates open at 1 o'clock. There's people outside of Little Caesars Arena, which is a beautiful arena, by the way. And this is for an esports This is for an esports e tournament. tournament. Not, the, not the, you know, global finals, which they have every year, and they move it around from city to city. But this is kind of a, it was a summer final. So I think whoever won this earned a seat in the year-long finals. Little Caesars Arena, part of downtown Detroit's Renaissance, not too far from the Fox Theater there on Woodward Avenue. The gates open at 1, start time's at 3. You got people lined up from Little Caesars. I mean, it had to have been 200 yards to get into the building. And my crew is in there with surveys and tables, 
and they came in. We had little giveaways, these, these little wristbands that had sayings that I didn't even understand what the sayings were. They pertained to the game, and they, you would have thought it was I was giving them a bar of gold. Uh, so we didn't have a problem getting surveys done. The event starts, our crew is done for the day, and I decided to go in before I went back to the hotel and watch for 15 minutes. And so you walk into the arena, and down where the basketball court would normally be, right near the center ring, you've got 10 chairs, five facing north, five facing south. These guys are seated at their chairs with monitors in front of them, up on a little platform. Whatever they're looking at on the monitor, you can see on the big screen. Right. And you can follow them playing the game against each other. So there are just and, 10 participants on the floor. Yeah. And Five for each team. They each have a coach that's kind of like walking behind them. They all have these headsets on. It makes me think of Madonna. Right? And they're playing against each other. And they're playing five versus five. Right. So it's, it's a team uh, game. And you're sitting there and you're watching the big screen. You see all these little characters moving around in this space. And, and then every, something happens. A light flashes. Someone moves quickly. And everyone in the crowd goes crazy. Because you're getting the reaction. But, but what I thought to myself as I walked away kind of dizzying with, with what I just saw was it's fan engagement. And they've, they've mastered that. They've figured out a way to connect with these young people. Uh, and, and that's why eSports is very dangerous uh, in some respects versus a lot of these other sports. Because some of these kids, if they're investing a lot of time and energy consuming the content... Uh, that's taking them away from consuming hockey and soccer and everything else. And, and so uh, in Detroit, these 10 participants on the field, and you had, what, 30,000, 25,000 people? No, no, so it was, it was in Little Caesars Arena, which seats about 20,000, right. and I would say you had about 16,000. That's pretty damn good, right. 16,000. It was four teams. So the I think the Saturday event was uh, the semifinals, and then Sunday were the, were the finals. You're in a different world, but one thing's the same, and that is the importance of connecting with people. And the Riot Games, they have figured out a way to connect with these younger people, and they're engaged, and they're loyal. Okay. Would you consider them athletes? They're competitors. I don't know if that, if that makes them an athlete, but certainly the, they're competitors. They're, they, they have to be focused. They have to be fast. So these are things that you would, attributes you would assign to a, a typical athlete. So I, I will say this, you're going to kick out of this. The gentleman that I mentioned to you earlier, Ari Siegel, who is the president and chief operating officer for Immortals, which is a, a company in the esports industry. They have a team in several of the top leagues. He told me once that they developed an innovative corporate partnership with K-Swiss, the shoe company. And you know, I said, well, what's, what's behind that? He said, well, part of it is a lifestyle brand. These gamers, the sneakers, the shoes are a big part of the culture. Okay. He said the other part of it is performance. I said, Ari, these kids are just sitting down in a chair. How does a particular performance shoe, how does that play into it? He goes, well, you know what? If it makes them feel like they are more sharp, more into their game. I could, I could see, you know, just now if I'm playing a game and I'm moving around, i got to grip my feet into the floor. It, who knows? But if it makes them feel like more of a gamer, then why not? Right. And so that's uh, very interesting insights into the culture. So now, we were talking earlier, and, and you mentioned that Maryville, they have a great program. Yes. And many of the professional teams are now developing their own eSports team. Is this a college sport or is it a professional sport? 
Uh, are there scholarships given out? Or? Well, many of the, the professional teams, certainly the NBA 2K, they've got that going on. I mean, they're doing this because why? They're trying to engage with younger fans. How can we engage with younger fans? Because of the reasons we talked about before. It's harder to engage with younger fans. So how can we connect with them? And trying to create these esports leagues is one way to do it. Is it going to take off in college? Are they gonna, is, this, is this going to be an NCAA sport? You know, that's a great question. I know that's uh, – they, they already got enough on their plate this year. I was just going to say that they have trouble they, dealing with basketball, football. Yeah, they, they're going to have a hard enough time this year with name, image, and likeness that they may table eSports for another year or two. But I do know that there is a, a group of people, another person that contributed to our Sports Business Summit in the past, Duran Parsi, is the CEO – of uh, Collegiate Star League, which is a collegiate esports league, and there's about 50 or 60 schools that are part of this league, not sponsored by the NCAA, just kind of a separate sanctioning uh, where they have tournaments throughout the year. Interestingly enough, you appreciate this, he just recently graduated from Pepperdine Law School. Uh, so Duran's a very smart guy, was a gamer himself, and probably wasn't quite good enough to play professionally, and he saw an opportunity to create, as you're suggesting, just, just like in minor league sports. Not everybody can play Major League Baseball. Never everyone can play in the NFL. So now you've created this XFL and the in the G League for people to kind of you know try to develop their talents. Well, Duran saw an opportunity to create this collegiate star league for people that okay, you're between 18 and 22, which by the way is a prime age for most of the professional gamers. Right. But maybe you're not quite good enough yet. So here's a, a testing ground for you to try to raise your game. I've talked to a, a good friend of mine who used to work here in sports in St. Louis. She's now a commissioner of a Division One conference. She, some of her schools have an eSports team, just like Maryville does. I think it's fascinating. Again, I think it could be a moneymaker because you would generate partnerships, corporate partnerships, but I don't think the NCAA is ready to go down that road yet because then they're worried about, well, do you pay these players? And I, I will say this. Maybe here's the connection is if name, image, and likeness goes a certain way and it's favorable towards student-athletes, that may open the door to esports being more likely to become part of the NCAA. You're a business consultant, sports business person. Name, image, and likeness. <laughs> What's your take on that and how it's going to affect college athletics and college business athletics? While I believe that ultimately it would make sense just to have one system applied to all 50 states, I think it was necessary, a necessary evil, if you will, for individual states to push and pressure the NCAA with their own separate agendas. California, of course, as you know, led things off in, at the end of September with their bill that doesn't go into effect until 2023. More pressingly, now you have over 20 states that are pursuing similar legislation. Some of those states, Florida being one of them, wants to start the legislation as early as 2021. So again, do I think that's optimal if every state has a different nil plan? No. But do I think that they need to put pressure on the NCAA? Absolutely. Do you have a nil plan? If you were the czar, do you have one that you'd come up with that would, you think would work? So I have always been in favor. In fact, that was funny. When I wrote about this this past summer, as the California bill was going through the, the system, I looked back at some of the previous Forbes articles I'd written on this, 
And even going back all the way to 2010, when I commented on Reggie Bush's uh, penalties or the loss of the Heisman, I've always been in favor of student athletes being able to receive corporate endorsements. Because to me, Bob, that actually takes pressure off of the athletic departments to have to pay these kids out of their own pockets. It's coming from corporate America. Now I realize you've got to be, you've got to have a system. I think there has to be a clearinghouse at the conference level and that the conference and the individual schools in the conference collaborate, keep track of all the deals that are done, that any representatives that represent the athletes need to be in concert with those conference clearinghouse officials. Bring it to light in somewhat the same way as the gambling issue. Let's bring it to light so that we can weed out the bad apples. Now again, I haven't thought through it carefully enough to think about what all the issues that could arise. But I think that's the important thing. What I don't like, what I'm hearing right now, Bob, is right now the committee that's talking about this and coming up with a plan at the NCAA is just NCAA administrators. I want them to bring in current student athletes. I want them to bring in former student athletes. Why not bring in a professional agent to also provide counsel? Make it a collaborative process, and as we both know, sometimes that's not the way the NCAA operates. Right, they're in, they're in the Dean Smith mode. They're going into the four corners. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. I've never had a problem. You know, some people were talking about Title IX. I, I guess that confuses me, and maybe I need someone from your profession to explain it. My understanding was that Title IX, which is gender equity uh, for any institution that's receiving federal assistance, and most universities do, uh, this is the reason why uh, you try to allocate your resources evenly between men's and women's sports. That's why in some cases you've seen some men's teams, uh, wrestling, to name one, uh, has been uh, you know, kind of cut out so you make sure that your numbers are pretty right. even between right. men and women. Difficult to do when you have a football team that can have 90 players. That's right, right? which of course the, the, the uh, right. I think humorous solution to that is some schools have a 90-woman crew team, a right. rowing team. Right. What I would like to see here is if you allow all the athletes to receive a corporate partnership deal, a corporate endorsement, it's not coming out of the university's pocket. So now it's up to industry and the marketplace to determine who gets what. Now, it may still be the case that your star football player is going to make more than, say, your star volleyball player. But at least now she has an opportunity, just as the star baseball player and the star women's soccer player and men's soccer player, to get something. And and here's another thing, going back to new technologies and social you know, media uh, mediums. We talked about eSports. A lot of these kids on eSports, they're making money from their channels on Twitch, which is a popular website for, for right. targeting specifically eSports. But just imagine now that maybe you're not the most, you know, the, your top women's volleyball player at SLU. She's not that popular in the grand scheme, but in niche sports, you have maybe a fan base and there might be a lot of young girls in the high school, pre-high school girls that know this woman that plays volleyball for SLU and will follow her on Twitter or Instagram. And this could lead to partnership opportunities for her there. So even if it's not as much money, I don't see how that creates a Title IX issue for the universities because the money's not coming from them. And the last thing I would say is People get upset, well, why can't they take a cut of their, their TV revenues and, and, and pay everybody that's a student athlete? 
Well, remember that football and men's basketball are basically paying for and subsidizing the rest of the entire athletics program. So when you start doing that, now you could actually be cutting into the funding that is helping to pay for women's and men's soccer, women's and men's golf, women's and men's tennis. You kind of believe what you're saying here is that the NIL stuff might help with the paying of, of, of athletes. Absolutely. Right. I, and because let's not forget that they're still getting in, in, in all the full ride scholarship athletes, they're still getting tuition, room, board, which is of itself an in-kind payment that's pretty significant. Right. And the other thing with, with esports, it could be a, a, a gender neutral uh, equalizer. Uh, because it's not, you know, anybody can play an eSport, so you could maybe get more... They can. Unfortunately, e- the eSports world is not very... It has a diverse fan following, but it's not very diverse in terms of who the gamers are. It's still very predominant. But we could, we could recruit more, yes, more, you know, female players so that it would become more diverse. That's right. Because... There's not a physical barrier uh, that's dividing those things at this point this, to play that, those games. Right, right. right. Okay. Well, great. That that that's interesting. The other thing I you probably notice when we look at the football and we look at the bowl systems, for instance, and college playoffs. Uh, and and I always I, I have this argument with my athletic college athletic friends is I don't understand the bowl system. I look in the stands and. There's you know 25,000 people in a 70,000 seat stadium. Nobody's going to a bowl game. Nobody's why. I mean, you, you might watch a bowl game on a on, during bowl season for 10 minutes, but unless your kids playing on it or it's your school and you, it's not destination TV. Can we not go to the Final Four concept? Expand it. Do you think we'll ever get to more than the four teams? So several things. First of all. The fact that Oklahoma got housed in this year's semifinal <laughs> didn't bode well for expanding the playoff because people were going to say, well, we're going to see more blowouts if we expand it to eight. I-, I thought that if you expanded it to eight, now you could bring into play all of these major bowls every year as part of the playoff. Uh, right now they've got to divvy it up because you only have really three meaningful bowl games every so year. So why aren't we doing that? Um, why aren't they doing well, that? Uh, my guess would be the retort would probably be from some of these people on the committee that, again, if are there really eight teams that have a legitimate shot of winning the championship and they could cite this year's one versus four but, game? But say one year is not eight. Another year there is eight. Maybe right, there's right, ten. Right, right. And if, if I'm going to, if the Orange Bowl, the Peach Bowl, the Sugar Bowl, the Fiesta Bowl are all leading up to those final right. games, wouldn't that make it more compelling I mean, than I, a game that means absolutely nothing yeah, to I mean, anybody? I, 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 I think it would. And so it's just a matter of, you know, look, at the end of the day, if the dollars and cents m- make sense, and I would think that ESPN would pony up if it was expanded at right. some point. And whether it's six and you give the top two teams a buy and you have three play six, four play five, and then play it out from there, at least that adds two more games. Do I think six or eight would eventually be uh, instituted? Yes, because I think the money is just going to be right. too big. But I could also see that counter-argument at least trying to maintain the status quo for a little bit longer. As far as these other bowl games, you're absolutely right. I mean, the attendances uh, have dwindled and the ratings have dwindled. But why do they still exist? They still exist because even those lesser-known bowl games... The ratings for those games still beat out just about everything else that's on TV that night because it's live sports. And from a marketing standpoint, those universities, and ironically I'm wearing my 
uh, university alma mater, UNC Charlotte. They made their first bowl game this year in their seven-year history of having football. They lost to Buffalo in the very first bowl game in the Bahamas. But it's great marketing for the school. Not it's, a bad trip for the kids. It's not a bad trip for the kids. Yeah, they 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 lucked out on that one. They could have gone to uh, well, the Yankees. We, well, we had, New York. To yeah, the yeah, we, Bowl. yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Uh, one that I've done an economic impact study before is the uh, Quick Lane Bowl, which is up in Detroit the day after Christmas. So, what do you think? That's well attended. No. no. Do you think? Do you think we'll move away from that? I mean, and, and you look at the Final Four, and, and you know, we we went from thirty-two teams to forty-eight teams to sixty-four teams, and I guess the argument is that we'll go from four to six to eight to 16 and it'll, it'll do. yeah I, I don't I don't think we're going to ever see what's taking place in the FCS the football championship series which uh, of course our local valley conference has teams that participate right. in that and they of course have a 16 game playoff that's that's been part of their legacy I don't see that happening again I could see maybe in the next 10 years as frustrating as that may sound it going to six or eight I don't see it going beyond that. And I do see a lot of these other smaller games still sticking around for the reasons I mentioned. Is even though the ratings have dwindled, you still are generating more ratings than other things on TV, so corporate partners like that. And uh, it's something that the universities, um, you know, it, it's great for their marketing and exposure. And so they would, of course, be in favor of keeping uh, a, a large number of bowl games. So we've talked about gender equity and, and, and female sports. Tell me about the, why haven't we ever been able to sort of grow women's sports in this country? What you know, it? it's funny, Bob, uh, you're familiar with Stadia Ventures here in town, uh -huh, and they uh -huh. had their, their demo days last week, and, and uh, Tim Hayden and his crew do a fabulous job over there. Uh, Washu alum Mike Bynum is now part of right, that group. Right, right. And one of the panels that they had before the they had the three entrepreneurs give their their sales pitches to the the many investors in the room. There was a, a panel on women in sports, and uh, Kalia Collier from uh -huh. the St. Louis Surge was there. Uh, Kira Emerson. She's done. A, she's done. I mean, she's, she, she's done a fabulous job. She's just not in a big time league. That right. is a fabulous job. She's right. Right. Uh, Kira Emerson is the VP of Business Intelligence for the Blues. Uh, unfortunately for her, a lifelong Dodgers fan. <laughs> And, you know, really it comes back to how do you increase the interest in women's team sports and, and professional league? And I, I just don't know the answer to that. The WNBA has been around for however many years now, and they used to be subsidized essentially by the NBA. I don't think that financial model exists anymore. I haven't seen their ratings, but I, I can't imagine that they've been spiking over the years. It's probably just kind of, right, just, kind of just, going along. just going along. You know, every time the women have a World Cup, the TV ratings and the attendances at NWSL games right. spikes. But do I expect that to be sustained? And whatever the average attendance for the second half of this year's NWSL season, do I expect that to be maintained next year? No. And, and I think it... You know, it's 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 funny. We're well, it's not funny that we're talking about this the day after Kobe's tragic passing. It, it almost takes somebody like a Kobe Bryant, who was very much uh, since his his daughter, who unfortunately passed with him, was apparently a rising basketball star. They were going to UConn basketball games and Oregon basketball games and 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 going to WNBA games. So it almost takes the support from a group of stars to really shine more consistent light on these things. I can appreciate 
you know, let's talk about a sport that I'm a little bit familiar with is, is golf. And I'm very passionate about golf. And I can name a few women stars from the golf world from years past. Obviously, Annika Sorensen, right, right. uh, Lorena Ochoa, the Mexican star, uh, Michelle Wee, who never quite lived up to right. expectations, and uh, Paula Creamer, the Pink Panther, I think right. her nickname is. But I, these are just a few people that I can name. I can't tell you the last time I sat and watched what's the biggest women's tournament of the year in golf, yeah, the U.S. Know. Open. It used to be the Dinah Shaw Classic, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, the, the, the U.S. Open is probably the marquee event, and I might watch the last half of the last round just because it's competition and I enjoy it. But I, I would say that the only women's team sport that I personally uh, find myself watching uh, a lot of is women's soccer because I played soccer myself and because I know that the quality is good. But that's at the national level. Right. That's not the individual. But the market. quality of women's golf is, I mean, you know, for a duffer like me, I mean, they're oh, no, there's no watching them. They're oh, doing everything oh, that the I men mean, are doing. I mean, they would, they, they would rob us blind if they, right. if they took us out on the, cor uh, on the course and, and played us in a match. But... Just something that, again, unfortunately for a lot of, uh, of demos, it just doesn't reach them. Well, I'm going to hire you. What can I do to build women's sports? Well, what does it take to build a fan base in general? Uh, I think that it, it takes engaging with people. So I think you've got to try that much harder to figure out ways to engage with fans. Just like the XFL team is doing grassroots and targeting and segmenting right. to probably reaching out to a lot of the high school football enthusiasts and former Rams fans. If you're marketing, say, an NWSL soccer team here in St. Louis, let's say, then I'm going to the universities, I'm going to the high schools, I'm going to the youth soccer uh, academies and reaching out to them and trying to sell them to come to our games. If it was a WNBA team coming to St. Louis, I'd do the same thing with the youth basketball and the high school basketball crowds. We just had the uh, NHL All-Star game here. Did you do any work on the impact on what that meant for, for a community? I didn't. I'm sure you have an opinion, though. Well, I think that the biggest impact is the way the city came off. The visuals on television were spectacular. Talking to people from the NHL and other outsiders just casually because I went to some of the events, everyone was extremely complimentary of St. Louis. I can't tell you what the economic impact of the event is. My sense is probably 80% of the people that were uh, here for the event were from the local St. Louis area. So whenever that's true, it makes the impact a little bit less than if the percentage was reversed and 80% were from out of town. But certainly there were a lot of people that did still come to town, certainly from the NHL's uh, corporate offices. I think that's the biggest impact, Bob, is we accounted for ourselves extremely well with the way we presented the city, the way we operated the event, the people that matter, in this case the NHL headquarters, very effusive with praise. And on television, all these beauty shots of St. Louis, it just does wonders for the marketing of the city. Right. There's value there. The only sort of pushback I would have, and I had this pushback a little bit on when the Blues won the, the, the Stanley mm -hmm. Cup, which I thought was wonderful for the city, was and it goes back to the segmentation and demarcations of, of our fan base here is that it didn't really engage the whole city because the African-American community uh, was not existent. I, 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 you know, so what's interesting, and I know we're, we're running low on time, but on Friday I was in Ferguson. I was invited to attend a, a documentary, a screening of the Willie O'Ree documentary, uh -huh. Willie. Right. And it's a story about the life and times of uh, NHL Hall of Famer, Willie O'Ree, who was a basically the Jackie Robinson of right. the National Hockey League. 
uh, and really focused on just the uh, like March till November of 2018 because that's when he, he found out he was being at least up for the Hall of Fame and just kind of following. Did he get him. in? Uh, he did get in. Okay. He did get in. And what's amazing about his story was, you know, not only, of course, anytime you see a story like that, as with Jackie Robinson, you hear about the abuse that he took, which would you feel horrible about. But what's really amazing in the case of Willie O'Ree is he actually lost his vision in one eye in the 50s and never told anybody because he was afraid that that, coupled with his color of his skin, was going to uh, make him an outcast. So he made it to the pros and played 20 years of professional hockey with one good eye. But, you know, you see that the, there at least was the outreach by the Blues to engage the African-American community for an event like that, and passes were given out for people to attend, free passes, to attend either the skills competition or the game on Saturday night. But, but I agree, Bob, it's still something that's not endemic uh, to the African-American community is hockey, and so what kind of real engagement is taking place, I don't know. And, and, I, th- and I think... The ex, not the X because I think African Americans are engaged in football, but I think soccer and the hockey the, to grow their sports to the next level, they're going to have to try to engage more of the community. But right. the Willie O'Ree story, story is it's a great amazing. is a great way to end, end end this. And as I said in our introduction, uh, we were going to talk about everything. I think we did <laughs> talk about everything. Uh, and you know, Patrick has uh, done a great job and uh, understands the sports business. And I really appreciate you coming on the the pro the podcast and uh, educating me and our and our and our listeners so thank you very much thank you for having me we we also talked a little bit about uh, Kobe Bryant and, and the unfortunate passing uh, of, of Kobe yesterday and then as I sat here yesterday afternoon in the morning after we learned that Kobe had passed away I had trouble marshalling my feelings about all of it uh, I was frozen in thought uh, I did not know Kobe I was no longer a diehard Laker fan, and I realized, like us all, that Kobe had flaws. But like me, so many of us have watched Kobe grow up from an 18-year-old kid just graduating from high school to one of the NBA greats who was successfully transitioning to a successful full-time business leader. We witnessed him struggle with sharing the spotlight and being a demanding teammate to being one of the game's fiercest competitors. We watched closely through his sexual assault charges and the pain he caused his victim and the family. But on this day, all I felt was shock. 41 is too young, and 13 is tragically too young. We will remember him as the Black Mamba, competitive beyond belief, demanding on his teammates, but more so of himself. We were lucky to see him play, and he left it, left his mark as an NBA legend. Rest in peace, Kobe and Gianni, and to the other deceased passengers, our greatest condolences to all those families. Again, I want to thank Patrick for, for, for being part of us. To our listeners, I just want to say I hope you enjoyed listening to Patrick Rich and that you enjoyed our podcast. And if you have, let us know. You can provide your feedback by going to Apple Podcasts and going to the ratings and review sections for our podcast. If you're listening on Stitcher, go to stitcher.com and search for After the Buzzer to leave a review or comment. Of course, if there's a topic you would like us to hear us discuss, let us know. We thank you for listening.